Welcome to the Rockonomics Podcast, episode number 51. I'm your host, Dill, and this week we welcome drummer Mark Schulman to the show. Mark is an in-demand drummer who's played for Richard Marks, Simple Minds, Billy Idol, Pink, and many, many others. But it was a blown audition for the band Bad English that left a profound effect on Mark and led him to dedicate himself to conquering anxiety and become the consummate professional musician, author, and corporate speaker that he is today. I met up with Mark while he played with Pink on her beautiful Trauma World Tour, and our conversation about gratitude, fortitude, and conquering life's stage fright went a little something like this. Um, in your book, the way, yes. you, the way you started your book, I'm going to edit it a bit, but you say, I'm a drummer. Turning that into a career hasn't been easy. There were some big hurdles early on. Oh, yeah. Now, I know there's the major hurdle that you kind of hinge everything on with bad, the bad English. Audition. Yeah. But talk a little bit prior to that, because if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're, you're in your late 20s when this happens, right? Yeah, mid-20s, yeah. Okay, and then your first, you were saying your first big tour was with Brenda Russell. That was your first big right. you know, thing. So what what led up to that? Was there a you know number of years kind of hit and miss you know, leading up to Brenda Russell and then subsequently your... your well, I, I got the opportunity through my friend Dan Reed of Dan Reed Network because I was, I was living in Portland at the time and Dan was the one that... You know, called me on the phone and said, "Hey, man, I was hanging out with the guys from Journey. You know, he's already touring. He'd already gotten a record deal. Was already touring with Bon Jovi. He's like, you know, and he was talking about Bad English. He said they, they've got this band, Bad English, and they decided rather than hiring one of their contemporaries to play drums, they want to find like a young, hot, fresh drummer. So I recommended you, man. I think it's your time. You could do this. And uh, I thought this is great because I'd already had my own, you know." led my own band, produced music in local studios in Portland, and I thought, yeah, I'm ready for this. It's going to be great. I'm the guy. And I showed up, and I was just overwhelmed with stage fright, and I was rushing, and I just completely botched the audition, essentially. And those are those pivotal moments in your life where you either kind of decide you're going to get off the stage and give up, or you're going to bridge the gap and figure out what it is you need to know. And I realized, okay, I have not mastered my internal sense of time, my meter, which is foundational for a drummer. So I spent the next two years just really working hard to uh, actually take what, what was called at the time the rhythm course, which is still being taught by uh, Tom Mandola, the guy that taught me a gazillion years ago. Just mastering my internal sense of time. It wasn't only for drummers, but for all musicians, because I felt, well... I got to go back to the drawing board. Even though I thought I was ready, I wasn't ready. I mean, I had a lot of chops, and I knew how to lead a band, but my time was just not solid enough. So I spent two years working with a metronome, the metronome that had been my nemesis on that particular uh, Bad English audition when, when Jonathan Cain threw a metronome at me and said, watch the light, man. Um, so I went back and did my homework. And then, because my goal was I never wanted anybody to tell me I'm speeding up or slowing down unless I want to speed up or slow down, so I did. And it was a big learning experience, so I worked really hard. Then I got the opportunity to basically be put into the Brenda Russell gig without having to audition. And so I essentially just needed to keep the gig, which I did. And by that point, I was really comfortable working with the click track, and we were doing a lot of stuff with loops and, and sequences and I was actually running them. I was the electronics guy. I had a little MPC-60. I was running it. So I really cut my teeth. And um, that was my first tour. We were opening up for Billy Ocean. I was the R&B drummer in the opening act. So that was post? 
the bad English experience? Um, oh yeah, no, no, that was post. That okay. was yeah, I yeah. That was prior. Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. That, I that, thought that, you were that was using post. that as like as as a confidence going into the audition that you had done this with Brenda. So that oh no, 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 no. This is this this is prior. This was like yeah. Were you a quote unquote starving artist at that point? Was it like was. I mean, that well, would be a big break. Yes and no. I mean, I, I, was read, I was leading my own band in Portland. We were playing original music, making money. I was working at a stereo store. Um, I wasn't starving, but I, you know, certainly wasn't saving money. But I was, you know, making enough money in my 20s with low overhead um, and no kids <laughs> to survive. And then, you know, the Brenda Russell tour was, like, glorious. You know, I made... Uh, 750 bucks a week. That was like more than I could have ever imagined making in my life for playing drums. I was like, you're going to pay me 750 bucks a week to play drums? This is amazing. And uh, I had the time of my life, and it was amazing. And I, and uh, kind of then, your chops as yeah. You, you know. Well, it, 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 you know, there's, there's something you can only learn. I mean, my first book, you know, uh, uh, Conquering Life Stage Fright, Three Steps to Top Performance is based on three core concepts, which is three, the three C's, clarity, capability, and confidence. Clarity meaning, you know, you clarify your goal, have very, very specific ideas to what you want to do. And then capability, you identify what it is you want to do and determine the skills you need to get there, and you work your ass off, because that's what leads you to actual real capability, not false capability. So I did the work. And then getting on the road, you know, you're clocking those Malcolm Gladwell hours, so to speak, right, you right, know. Right. So being on the road for four months, you can only get the experience of what it's like to be on the road by being on the road and being on big stages and small stages and Having that time on stage, because you can sit in the practice room and clock 20,000 hours and get on a stage and not know what the hell to do. Right. So it's really critical to understand that you need to clock the hours doing what you do. So spending four months on the road in a tour bus, playing every night, that's all experience that you can only gain doing that. You know, people can tell you about it, you can read about it, but until you live it, you haven't done it. And that just gives you a sense of refinement. And the more you do it, the more refined you get. It's like you get the, the better you get at anything you do, you spend the hours. And that's why the importance of developing the capability, you can't fake the capability. And that's the only thing that brings you to confidence. And after four months of being on the road, my confidence was dramatically increased. Um, I had also had made a promise that I was going to you know, do anything I could do to mitigate the sort of fear and stage fright. And... And I mitigated that also by being prepared. I mean, the, tr the true way to get over any sort of fear, particularly stage fright, is being really prepared. Because if you get on stage and you're not prepared, you should be fucking scared. <laughs> so I worked extra hard. I was the overachiever. I practiced every nuance. I programmed every little thing. I did everything I could do to overachieve, to overprepare. Because that way I knew I would get on stage and even if I was extraordinarily had, you know, had deleterious fear or stage fright, it wouldn't take me over because I was so overprepared that I would, that my natural ability would just take over right, right. and it would work anyway. Right. Now, a lot of the musicians I talk to, you know, talk about finding the next gig, you know, yeah. either a lull Absolutely. or this and that. What happened after um, Brenda Russell? Well, Did you roll into something else? I got so darn lucky because after Brenda Russell, I actually got a call from uh, Alan Kovac, one of the top uh, music managers in the business. And uh, he um, called me 
because he had seen me play with Brenda Russell, and, and, he, and this guy was like an A-list manager, like really volatile, you know, heavy-duty duty. He was managing like what? Motley Crue, uh, Bee Gees, uh, uh, Richard Marks, a Blondie. But he had just signed this brand-new band called Times Two, this R&B band. And he seen me play with Brenda Russell, and he wanted to offer me a gig with Times Two. I'm like, this is amazing, you know? But when I went to, by the time I went to his office, I had heard that one of his A-list artists was going to need a new drummer. And so by the time I got to his office, I was, I was like, I, I say that I, I drove to his office with butterflies in my stomach and I landed at his office with bats in my, in my stomach because I knew that I heard from two different sources that one of these A-list artists needed a new drummer. Um, and so that was my quandary. It's like, do I tell him, I really want to play with this high revenue generating A-list artist or accept the gig. He's basically offering me a gig that we were supposed to start rehearsing the next week. Um, and so I opted to uh, accept the gig he was offering me. And I'm like, we signed a little deal memo. It's like, oh, this is great. I'm going to start next week. And I'm celebrating with my girlfriend. And I'm calling all my friends. And that night, I'm lying in bed going, I made the wrong decision. What the hell do I do now? And in the morning, I got him on the phone. I said, Alan, listen, man, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to go out with Times too. But I got to tell you, man, I'd heard from a couple of different sources that Richard Marks needs a new drummer. And... Uh, I thought he was going to, like, hang up on me. I thought he was going to cuss me out. Um, and he started laughing. He's like, well, man, I don't even know you as a rock drummer. I thought you were an R&B drummer. Like, I'm whatever kind of drummer you want me to be, buddy. <laughs> he says, well, it's true. Uh, Michael DeRozier from Heart was doing the gig. He said he's leaving the band. He said, so he's going to do one more little promotional gig, like a little radio station gig with the band. And then we're going to be auditioning, like, 15 or 20 drummers, and we're going to go on a big world tour. And then he's silent. He's kind of leaving me hanging. And then he goes... Well, listen, man, look, I don't want to crush your dreams. If you want the chance to go out with Richard Marks, I'll put you in line. You can audition with all those other, you know, world-class drummers. But you got to give up the chance to go out with Times, too. i got to find somebody right away, man. What's it going to be? And at first I was really nervous, and then I kind of stopped and said, wait a minute. I've made my decision. I know I want to make this bold decision. I know I want to go out with Richard Marks. And I kind of calmed down, and my heart slowed down, and my head cleared. And then I had this idea, and I blurted it out before I could even think of, like, stop myself. I said, Alan... Why don't you let me play this promotional gig? That'll be like my audition, and that'll save you guys the time and the energy and the money and the hassle of finding another drummer. Like, like, who's saying this? Where is this coming from? And he goes, okay. well, that's an interesting idea. Let me call you back. And he hangs up the phone, and I'm grinning from ear to ear, not quite realizing the gravity of the opportunity I just created. And he called me back, and he said, Richard wants to meet you. Can you be at my office tomorrow at 11 a.m.? I'm like, you bet your ass I can be. You know, so I shine up my rock and roll jewelry. I shine up my rock and roll boots. I got a brand new rock and roll outfit. The next morning, 11 a.m. sharp, I'm shaking hands with Richard Marks. And it turns out that I'd been recommended to Richard by somebody else. So after 15 minutes, he goes, hey, man. I like you. I'm going to let you play this gig. We'll see what happens. He said, yes, it was amazing. So I played the gig and again, went really well. And then I got the offer to do the world tour with Richard Marks. And that was like my first chance to be playing with the main act, the A-list artist on the main stage for 15 months playing in front of like 15, you know, 90% screaming girls. Wow, that's <laughs> awesome. So that's, that's 91, correct? That was 89. 89. Okay. Yeah. Where am, I, where am I getting this information? Yeah. It's all right. Um, uh, no, I play eighty nine ninety. I played his repeat offender tour, his largest okay, so he's grossing still, tour of all time. That was his biggest tour. He's still hot. Yeah. Very cool. Very interesting. So you had a couple obstacles that not many people come up against, and that is um, your girlfriend at the time. Our wife. Your wife at the time, time yeah. was diagnosed yeah. with cancer. Yeah, that was a little later on, yeah. Um, and you yourself 
had a cancer. Yeah, yeah. Was, right in the middle of her cancer, I got diagnosed with testicular cancer. It was crazy. It was freaking insane. And I think what adds insult to injury in, in that case was you said she did not have coverage, or I guess as a family. You didn't. Well, initially, yeah, she didn't have any 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 health insurance coverage, so she ended up doing like adjunct alternative therapy, and um, then fortunately, before we were married. She was still technically married to her ex-husband, who was still our friend, and then he got insurance. He was able to cover her insurance. And and the alternative therapy was basically failing. She was dying. Right. And my mom was the one that said, you know, get her ass in the hospital. She needs chemo. And he had health insurance by that point, so we took her to the hospital. And by that point, her Hodgkin's disease, which had recurred, she'd had it 10 years earlier, it metastasized into stage 4B, which was in the bones, and it was pretty damn dangerous. And so she... Um, did chemo uh, and it didn't work and then she harvested her own stem cells and then she did a stem cell transplant and um, she nearly died in the hospital twice and it was it was a horrible experience and this is in and around me going in and out of touring and staying home and I had to postpone a tour and it was nothing anybody should ever sure, have to sure. go through but she survived she's still alive she's still kicking and you know, it's, it's it's she's a real success story. I mean, she's had some health issues as a result. She's had uh, heart surgery and lung surgery, but hey, she's still alive, man. And 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 my uh, testicular cancer left me with the ability, according to the doctors, that I'd never be able to father a child. Right. And then, uh, you know, Kelly and I ended up getting a divorce because uh, it just the relationship had run its course. I was there for her, and she was so you know grateful for that. And then then I met Lisa, and. Uh, Lisa was just bound and determined that I was going to father her child, and it was like, man, like a little miracle, she ended up getting pregnant, um, literally, because I wasn't supposed to be able to father a child, and we gave birth to the most perfect human on the on the planet. My daughter, Zadie, is about to turn nine next week, and we have this amazing family, and we're just like, the, I call us a power trio. <laughs> we just have so much fun, and my daughter has been on 238 flights, and she's barely nine years old, because they come out to visit, and... Yeah. And you know she's a she's got a you know purple belt in martial arts, and she's published two articles in the local paper, and she's you know um, you know has an acting agent and an acting manager, and she's learning Lyra, and I mean she's like an overachiever. She's an amazing kid, and we're just like the most proud parents on the planet. So things work out, man. And yeah, you know I I had a little bit of a little bit of a scare um, with uh, my esophagus and and uh, they were concerned that I might have uh, Barrett's esophagus. I had like three um, endoscopies and yeah, yeah. but that's all turned out okay too. So I'm just you know watching my diet and watching my medication and being careful and being a good boy and trying to stay healthy and um, you know it's been a it's been a quite quite an interesting road while trying to balance two careers because I'm not only um, on the road as a musician, but I'm doing. I, have, I, have, I do a lot of speaking gigs, corporate yeah. speaking gigs now too. And so, perfect segue. Yeah. I was going to say, you're, you're. And I'm writing my second book, and you're, you're, <laughs> never a dull moment. Your revenue streams seem to be drumming. Yeah, teaching. Yeah, you get paid for teaching in the LA Music Academy. Well, that's been a while. I, I, I'm yeah. taught. It, it, it's LA College of Music. It used to be LA Music Academy. I haven't taught there since 2004. I was one of the original teachers in 1996. Um, and the only teaching I do now is I do some one-on-one -on -one private career coaching, rarely. Mm -hmm. But mostly the teaching I do is through the corporate speaking gigs I do. And I speak for big corporate clients. Um, and I use music as a metaphor and I play drums. And it's a lot of fun. And it's uh, it took me a long time to connect the content 
because um, I'd been doing drum clinics forever. Right. So it's kind of an extension of that. And Dom Femularo, my dear friend, was the one that kind of inspired me to do that because he got called to do a corporate gig based on doing a drum, uh, uh, a drum clinic. And I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. All I need to do is really refine my messaging Right. Because people love to hear the road stories. They love to hear the success stories. And if you can make it applicable back to their particular mandate and their issues and their problems in their, in their corporate world, whether it's like sales or IT or healthcare or finance, whatever it happens to be, and I address their issues, we have pre-conference calls. And it's been really fun and really interesting because it's me up there for an hour <laughs> in front of a corporate audience and I need to entertain them Uh Engage them and bring them content that is a, has immediate takeaways right, immediately right. useful, you know. But that all works around the pink tour because the number one thing I'm doing is is still playing with pink because she's she's the queen. It, it, that's that's the top of the heap. You know? When did that start? You're speaking. Well, and eventually I realized that I could I could take what I was doing in my drum clinics and morph that into something that was bigger than the drumming community. And I started doing some college gigs, and then I started doing some small corporate gigs and. That started kind of in the early 2000s, and I think I did my first big corporate gig in 2004. And uh, I still, um, first big corporate gig was IBM. And that was also a total mess up. I, I messed it up uh, because my, my, my media crashed and I had to kind of go off script. And, and, and the guy that hired me was pissed off because of the media crash. And again, one of the things I realize is we learn the most from, from the mistakes we make. Right, right. <laughs> so the, the mistakes I've made have been the ones that have had the most profound experience on what I need to improve upon. And every t- single time I, I'm, I practice my, my speech almost every day. So I'm still always working on the script and trying to refine it and trying to refine my electronics and trying to refine every nuance about my travel, about every single thing that I do. It's all, again, building that, those, those 10, 20, 30,000 hours of experience up to make what you do more viable and easier. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm a service guy. I, right, right. I look at myself as being of service. So as long as I um, remove my ego from everything I'm doing and just look at myself as being of service, I'm fine. Has there ever been, you know, you mentioned having a conference call with the company that's going to hire you to kind of find the context. Do you ever struggle yeah. with how the hell am I going to find a context with? No, actually, because I, I love <laughs> to hear their story. My thing is like I look at it as, as an opportunity, as an experience. Like tell me your story. Tell me what's going on. Tell me the problems. I always ask, what are the main strengths, the main weaknesses? What's this collective group? What they're, what's their, what are they about? I let them tell me. Right. You know, people love to talk. Uh, and, I, and, I, and so I like to learn to be a very good listener. And I'm always taking really conscientious notes while I'm listening because it's really critical so that I can go back and then reference back to whatever their issues are. Because it's very important for me. It's very important to be relatable to your audience. You know, you got to know your audience, whether you're playing music, whether you're giving a speech, whether you're like teaching, whatever you're doing, know your audience. If you don't know your audience, then you're not being of service. So you can't just do the same thing over and over. And every audience is different. We go on stage with Pink. Every audience is different. She treats every audience slightly differently. She'll say slightly different things. And, you know, we vibe off of the audience, so we respond. There might be subtle differences, but there's subtle differences in our performances based on the response we're getting from the audience. Because... You, we're human. We're, right. we're interactive. We want it to be we're interactive. We, want, we, want, we don't want to be robotic or rote or doing the exact same thing. We want the, the chance to um, elaborate and, and improvise even within a structure that's the pop world. I mean, I don't play the exact same thing every night. Yeah. I get inspired to do different things. That might be an inspiration from the other musicians or the audience or from Alicia or from somebody else or from the dancers. I mean, you never know what's going to 
cause that extra bit of inspiration. So right. you got to keep your eyes and ears wide open. Well, I heard you mention too about sometimes the day of the week will dictate kind of well, that, the, the feel of the audience. Oh, absolutely. Which, which I, I think may be of obvious course. when you think about it. But getting back to the audience, you know, right now we're considered like a banking town, whereas you probably played tech-centric towns yeah. and liberal towns and conservative towns. But you, you get a sense for that or there's a subtle... You know, man, it's, it's so strange because it's not like there are any absolutes. Sometimes the, the, the audiences that we think are going to be the best are the most subdued. And sometimes the audiences we think might be the least responsive are just absolutely amazing. The last two audiences, we played Jacksonville and we played Columbia, South Carolina. They went nuts. Jacksonville was one of the best audiences I remember in years. And we didn't have high expectations. We thought, oh, Jacksonville, we didn't really know much about the town, kind of a small town. The area we were in wasn't that great. And we thought, oh, whatever. Man, that audience was on fire. Because they wanted it more. They were hungry. Yeah. And the audience has a collective MO, modus operandi, so to speak, method of operation. They vibe off of each other. So there's sort of a natural vibe between them that they're kind of communicating within each other. So every audience is like its own unique entity that you're performing for, you're having expression with, and, and you're having a communication with. It, it needs to be interactive. If you treat it like it's the same thing every night, it's not good for anybody, especially us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the way that I, I, you know, one of the things I talk about, like, when I speak is that when I play drums, every single note matters. Every nuance matters. Because the more every single note matters, the more purpose I attach to every note. And the more passion I have about every note. And the passion creates more purpose. Purpose creates more passion. And how the hell else do you think I can play so what, like, over 600 times? Right. And be just as passionate and purposeful about the first time as the last time. And I make a joke, like, I play with Foreigner nearly 25 years speaking it feels like the first time one night I realized I played that goddamn song like hundreds of times but then I also stopped right then I looked at the audience and I said wait a minute over half these people it is their first time so how dare I deprive them of that first time experience because I've done it a thousand times right. so I'd rather tap into their first time experience than be pompous and bored because I've done it so many times right. it's unfair so it's, funny, the irony of that song. <laughs> yeah, I know, the irony of the song, but it's true. So that's what I do. So that's why I approach the way I play. And that's why I believe I'm still in the middle of the world class after 30 years, man. I mean, I'm still here because I don't treat any note lightly. Like, not one thing slides by me. It's And not, not the great players that I know, not one thing slides by them. They take every single nuance. I mean, we, we you know the, the great the greatest performers pay attention to every detail. Every moment is critical. And if you don't treat every moment like it's critical, if you start thinking about what the hell you're going to eat for dinner, I mean, we all lose concentration every now and then. But I bring my ass right back. Yeah. That's my responsibility, man. If you want to be in the world class, that's what you got to do. Right. So, I mean, you're what they consider a first call drummer. And from the very start of... You know your your salad days till now. When when did you feel you reached stability? At least I mean in the context. Never felt that way. In this, man. Maybe in the context of the show. When did you did you ever have financial stability? Well, and that's not riches, but just like where you weren't. You know, could, to be next. perfectly honest, I've never been the best guy in the world for my money. Considering I'm a Jewish drummer, you know, I should be like great, but I never really thought about it enough and invested enough. I'm doing it now, but it took me a long freaking time to do it. But that's because I had a kid. <laughs> um. I've never felt like I've made it. I've never felt like financially like independent. 
So I've always felt hungry, and I've always felt compelled to work harder. I mean, I am working as hard as I've ever worked in my life. And, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I just don't sit back on my laurels and, and drink a bunch of booze and, you know, watch movies all day. Right. I'm working. The moment we're done, I'm going back up and working. I have a conference call with a client in an hour. I'm working on my next book. I'm writing, you know, doing two newsletters a month now. I'm writing articles. I'm constantly updating my content. I want to be relevant. I want to be relevant. It's all about being relevant, whether you're a musical artist, whether you're a musician, whether you're any kind of corporate client or any kind of business, you got to remain relevant. The, right. the way to remain relevant is to provide something that's of value. So for me to remain relevant, I need to be of value in everything that I'm doing. As a father as well. Right. I, I, I pay a, I, I'm, you know, my family is the most important thing to me. I haven't talked about the family yet, but I do it all for my family. So. Anytime they call, I answer that fucking phone. Unless I'm on the stage performing or rehearsing or in the middle of a conference call, I answer the phone. I'm always available to my family because I'm gone so much. Right. That's why we're so close. The only way, you know, that's what matters to me. The relationships are what matter. So if, if, if you don't make it about the relationships, you put something else first. So I'm, I never want to be that guy that has that regret that's on my deathbed going, man, if I had only spent this amount of time doing this and that. I mean, everybody, you read, you know, I've read so many times about all these old people that they talk about, okay, what do you regret about your life? And, you know, this sort of universal regret is I didn't spend more time doing what I love. I didn't spend more time with my family. I spent too much time working. I mean, the way that I look at work is work is not work. It's play. Work is opportunity. Work is something I, I still do my best to enjoy or as a means to an end. Because when I'm working, I'm working to provide a service that's going to matter to somebody else's life. So I don't just look at it like I'm, I'm doing something that's drudgery. I don't want it to be drudgery. I want it to be valuable. If I'm going to release an article in my newsletter, I want it to have value to people. I want people to read that and have aha moments. Mm -hmm. That's valuable. That's why it may not be – it's work. I mean it takes time, but it just depends on – you know, my, my, my next book is on ABC, Attitude, Behavior, Consequence, meaning we – can't choose what happens to us, but we can choose our attitudes about what happens to us. And our right. attitudes are what drive our behaviors, and our behaviors are what determine the consequences of our life. That's really powerful, dude. <laughs> Sounds simple as hell. It's as powerful as anything you can imagine. You can choose your attitude in any moment. So I'm choosing my attitude about what I do, which is driving my behavior, which is then determining the consequences of my life. So I know that when I'm sitting down, I can choose any attitude I want. I could choose a shitty attitude. I could choose a motivated attitude. I could choose a loving attitude. I could choose a compassionate attitude. I can choose a motivated attitude. I have that choice. Right. So that's what the book is. The book is a study on how to to choose the attitudes that you want to choose and what happens in certain MOs if you don't. Right. <laughs> Well, in your last book, I, what I took away, uh, or what was profound to me, was the have to versus get to. Oh, I talk about that in my, uh, that's one of the most powerful and simple things. I talk about that in my speech every day. It it's, is. It's, it's so simple. It's just but it's shifting a, great, a have to I, to a get to, man. It just takes it, well, what it does is it takes it out of the realm of being a chore. It makes it a choice. It takes it out of the realm of being, I'd rather be the willing effect of what I, of the willing cause of what I want than the unwilling effect of what I don't want. Right. So, I mean, look, There's an quite frankly, in every single day, I'm not always as elated to go on stage as other days. Some days I don't feel that great. Some days I'm tired. But I just kind of go, wait a minute. 
I get to go on that damn stage. Yeah. I'm one of the luckiest people on the planet. So There's an air of gratitude there, yeah. too. That it's, well, it, gratitude is it a big thing. Well, we celebrate gratitude before every show. I mean, we have a big prayer circle, and half of what we talk about is everything we're grateful for. And it fortifies us. Actually, gratitude is like a muscle that needs to be exercised. It's literally like... It's, it's empowering because when you're focusing on gratitude, you're focusing on the abundance, the money in the bank, the fuel in the tank, the successes, the wins, as opposed to the scarcity and the negativity. And right. any one of us at any point in time, that's why the attitude shift, the attitude choice, you have the choice at any moment in time to make that decision. As long as you're conscious enough, you're consciously aware that you have the ability to control that mechanism, it's very powerful. Most of us are asleep. Yeah. And don't realize that. We let we believe that we are our thoughts. We believe that we are our minds. We are not. We drive our minds. We control our minds. There's something senior. There's a being. There's something bigger that drives it. So, you know, and I'm not getting religious. I'm just talking about the reality is that you can drive and control your right. mind. When do you aim to have the book, the, uh, book number two out? Well, I'm writing it with uh, one of the greatest thinkers on the planet, one of my life mentors, Dr. Jim. And in, in ABC is actually Dr. Jim's concept. I've, I've expanded upon that. And he helped me with CCC. He helped me with the last book as well. Um, but we're actually writing this together. And so right in the middle of it, I'm interviewing a lot of people. Like the last book, I'm interviewing a lot of top right. performers because I like to have a, a cross-collateralization of different people that I can draw from. So um, I don't want the book to interfere with anything that Pink's doing. So I want to be free and clear of the tour. So I'm not going to think about releasing the book or promoting the book until the tour is done because the focus is on the tour. I'm just doing it on the side now, because uh, I'm not busy enough. Yeah, exactly. Now, <laughs> but at, at some point, did you make a conscious decision to diversify? Like you have to be more than a drummer. I mean, if drums are ever taken away, what else are you going to do? Well, it, it happened organically. You know, my, my two... My parents, God bless them, were, you know, college professors. My dad's passed. My mom's still alive. Of course, she's almost 90. She's been retired for many years. But I have a bit of the teaching gene in me. I started teaching drums when I was 19. So at a point when I was asked to do my first drum clinic, I wasn't, I didn't think about it. I was asked. It's 1991. I was scared to death. But I put together this script and I figured, oh, we'll see what happens. I got on stage. I did the clinic and I thought, oh, man, I'm kind of good at this. I think I could be kind of good at this if I really practice this. So it became something that became a part of my life by default. I thought, I really enjoy this. It's a chance to get back. It's a chance to hang out with the drumming community. I could make a little extra money. Um, the equipment companies support it. They like it. You know, this is back when clinics were fat, you know, in the 90s. And that's where it started. It was like, oh, man, you know, why would I want to kind of sit on a day off if I can go to a freaking drum clinic? Why am I, you know... I'm not, I'm not a guy that's like to sit idle. I used to bring a, you know, a multi-track recorder and write songs. I, I am a guy that likes to do stuff. I, I'm just not a guy that likes to sit with my thumb up my ass on the day off. Yeah. I mean, I do like to see things. My family comes out, we party. You know, we do things. Yeah. I don't work when they come out on the road. But when I'm by myself, man, it's like, shit, I want to get shit done. You know? I mean, I like to have a good time and I like to see the local sites you know, if I'm in Rome, you're damn right. I'm not going out and walking around and seeing the sights and eating fine food. But I balance it out between having a schedule of I like to do things. Right. That's the kind of that's that's kind of how I'm built. You know, other people are built differently, but that's who I am. Yeah, I hear other musicians talk about their bandmates as like, oh, so many times they're just sitting in their hotel and order room service. It's like I got to walk out. I got to find the record store. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. 
looking at you sitting across from me, the blonde hair, the glasses, that's the visual brand. But have you made a conscious effort to create a brand? You know, you are about gratitude. You are about... Yeah. Well, know. I mean, that's who I am. Even Pink knows I mean, she calls me Disneyland is my, <laughs> my nickname. Um, because people kind of know that I'm the guy that, that represents positivity, that I'm the guy. And not that I don't have my moments. I don't get pissed off and I don't rail on somebody if, if, I, if I'm in the mood. But, you know, that's, again, there's a brand and there's who you are. I mean, my brand as a speaker is very specific because I have very specific topics. And, yes, I'm very high energy and very, quote, unquote, positive. But it's not just positive to be positive. It's, it's have a message that has, you know, some real real value that they can right. walk away with takeaways. Um, and as a drummer, I'm the same way because I just, I've always thought, man, I want to be the guy that's easy. You know, I want to be the guy that's like, you know, when you walk away from the experience of me, you walk away from the experience, oh, that guy was so easy to deal with. You know, I don't want to be the pain in the ass or the guy that's like, you know, wants the green M&Ms taken out of the freaking M&M jar, you know. Yeah. I'm not that guy. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, and if I ever become that guy even slightly, my wife kicks my ass, you know. So I, I pay a lot of attention. You know, you got to pay attention. You know, I just want to be a, I want to be a good guy. And, you know, this tour is a tour of really great, great people and a big family and people that are very kind and people that are very conscientious of each other. There's a common MO, common MO and it's top down. It starts with her because that's who she is. I mean, you know, she's a tough chick and she's biting and she's sassy. But she's got a very kind heart, and she's good to people, and we have a lot of fun. And um, she works really hard, so that's the MO. Work hard, play hard, um, and be good to people. And she won't take it, man. If she somebody, sees somebody being abusive to somebody else, man, they are out of here. She won't put up with that shit because she's not that way. And there are a lot of artists that are. I mean, I've, you know, fortunately, I've had the good fortune working with generally almost all really lovely people yeah. that that really are good and really do treat people well and um, because I've heard a lot of horror stories about some really abusive artists and people that really take advantage and break agreements and don't pay on time and I mean everybody's been good to me here I mean even the you know the manager Roger you know I've been working with Cher on and off you know for 20 years I worked with Cher I got the pin gig because I got this because I worked with Cher originally I've been working with the same management company for nearly 20 years they trust me well enough to have me back you know so yeah. I'm here, you know, um, and 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 she's happy. I mean, Pink 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 picks everybody very cautiously. There's no accident to anybody being here. And if she finds out that somebody isn't the right person to be here, then mysteriously they're gone. <laughs> and nobody talks guys, about it. They're I mean, just you, gone. You guys have tagged everything Pink's family on, on yeah. social. And, and well, that's also to, uh, my buddy Don, who created Pink's family. Um, Don actually handles my social media now. He's become a good friend of mine. And Pinky's family is actually something Don created in support of the band. Because right. he said, you know, she gets all, obviously all the attention, a gazillion amounts of attention. He said, I want to give the band attention because he's a drummer. And he's like, I just, you know, so it's a nice focus. And we became friends. And he's just truly just a... He's a full-time nurse. He's got four four kids, and he handles all the social media stuff because he loves to do it just out of passion. So when you meet people like that, I've made a, made a lot of friends with a lot of the fans because they're good people, and they go beyond fans, and they're not just the starstruck kind that wants something. I mean, you know, a guy like Don's always giving back, so he doesn't want – he doesn't expect a thing. Right. Of course, I give him whatever I can, and I love the guy. He's become a dear friend. 
But you know, you meet incredible people that really just want to be a part of the a part of your scene because they love the scene and they get pleasure just being there. Right. So exactly. Well, uh, I wrap up every show with the same five questions everybody gets. So okay, let's go there. I'll go short. Question number one: Your house is on fire. Your loved ones are safe. What do you go back? What's your most treasured possession, music oriented, that you would go back? Whether it's a tchotchke or a memorabilia or a Oh, my McCartney signed Hofner bass. Oh, really? Wow. Wow. That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> Question number two is, if I were, was at the liberty to give you a million-dollar check to then give to one charity, which one charity would you donate it to? Oh, Evey, that's a hard one, man, because, you know, I'm a cancer survivor, so I work with cancer charities, but I've also been on the board of directors and been working with this charity called Create Now, which mentors at-risk and high-risk kids in the Los Angeles area, and I'm so ingrained in their charity. I'd probably give half to them and half to a cancer charity, half to St. Jude's for mm-hmm. children, because I've been out there and visited, and I, I, I'm in tears. I can't watch a kid uh, yeah. with cancer without crying. I'm just, you know. Yeah, for sure. Question number three is, what would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? Uh, something by the Beatles. Anything by the Beatles. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> uh, reverse of that is what's stuck on repeat in hell. Uh, <laughs> I don't really focus on what I don't like too much, but um, I could be driven crazy by what I call cookie monster music, which is like, a <laughs> blah, 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 blah. you know, anything that's just like angry and has no melody. Okay. I think I can, uh, I think we can draw that conclusion. Yeah. And last question is simply, what's the best concert you've ever witnessed as a fan? McCartney. When was that? Every time I go. Every time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a, the opportunity to actually have a, like a 10-minute conversation with him one time, and he was such a gentleman. I was so overwhelmed because he's like my... My icon, you know, I met Ringo, but I didn't really have a conversation with him. But I met McCartney, had a nice conversation with him because we played with him at Isle White. And I, the conversation was done. I walked in the dressing room, walked in the bathroom, just started bawling my eyes out. I was so overwhelmed with like how amazing he was, and just that it was like it was like the dream you have when you have a conversation with your idol, and it went better. Yeah, you know, he was just such a gentleman. And Were you rehearsed? I mean, was there? Did you know there might be the opportunity to see him because he's on the bill? I yeah. figured I was probably going to meet him that day. Finally. Um, I've been waiting for the opportunity. And Barry Marshall, uh, who's his sort of de facto manager, is a friend of mine who's a big promoter in the UK. Um, you know, been times, and I'm just like, Barry, come on, man. i got to meet McCartney. got to meet McCartney. Come on, man. got to make this happen. I knew this day that was going to be the day it was going to happen, if it was going to happen. So we're out in the hallway, and, and uh, Alicia and her husband, Carrie, were talking to him, and he was standing right there. And I was just waiting, you know, when they were done, you know. Barry's like, hey, you know, Paul, Mark's been wanting to meet you. And I... And I I really didn't have much plan. The only thing I had planned was a true story. I said, you know, my daughter at the time was four months old. We were on the road for the first time together. I said, Paul, i got to tell you, every single day in the womb, I sang to my daughter the song, I Will, from the White Album. Every single day. And until she was born. And to this day, she calls it the sleepy song. She still remembers it. And he said, oh, mate, that's so charming. He whips out his phone. He starts showing me pictures of his kids. And before you knew, it was just a couple of dads, a couple yeah. of blokes just sitting there having a conversation. And it was like, I, I lost myself in the conversation. And and that was the dream come true. That, that's a good one. I've, often, I've, you know, I've asked a couple of artists, like, what's the best compliment someone could give you? Like a fan could give you. Because I'm sure so many fans came up and say, oh, my gosh, you're great, you're great. But it's like, to say something like that is very profound. It's got to be profound to them to 
hears him like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, you know, I'm sure he hears that a lot because everybody's a Beatles fan and everybody's been singing Beatles music. But we just had this one on one time and we just connected. And it was just, I was just the luckiest man in the world at that moment. I was just like, yeah, I just couldn't believe it. And that's why I was so overwhelmed with emotion that I cried afterwards. <laughs> I mean, who the frick cries after, you know? Like, oh, you're playing a lot of people, I think. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe so. Yeah, I know. I mean, I've seen plenty of people cry in front of Pink, and and she's that way to so many people. You know, I think about that every night. Like when she lies down and she signs people's, you know, arms or signs their stuff, or she talks personally to the audience. I mean, she's she's one of a kind. There's never been an entertainer like yeah. her, man. She really is that personal. She's truly extraordinary. You know. Yeah, man. That's my story. All right, we'll take it. Thanks so much for giving me your time. It's Thanks, bro. You. I appreciate it. Great to meet you too. Right. Great hanging out with such a positive ball of energy like Mark Schulman. Big thanks to Mark for coming on the podcast. You can keep tabs on Mark and buy his book, Conquering Life Stage Fright, or book him for a speaking engagement on his website, markshulman.com. You can also follow him on all social channels. Speaking of the book, I have an autographed copy of Mark's book to give away, so please keep an eye out for details on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages on how to win. We'll be back again with an all-new episode next Tuesday with a bassist whose father was a well-known musician during the British invasion of the 60s, so join us for that. Okay, episode 51 is one and done. Good night, Cleveland. Cleveland.